Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be together here again to join in worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all of you who are present here and to all those who have joined us via the live stream this afternoon. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour Jesus Christ and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Consistory has the following announcements. Lord's Supper will be celebrated next week Sunday in the morning service and you are also reminded that following that service there will be the election of office bearers. This afternoon the worship service will be led by Reverend Poppy and before we commence this service let us sing together Psalm 25 verse 2. Please rise and let's worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now sing together from Psalm 89, verse 1.
Let's now make a profession of our faith, and let's do so this afternoon with the words of the Apostles' Creed as set to music in hymn one. Now call upon the Lord in prayer and let's ask God for his blessing. Dear Father in heaven, we praise you, Lord, that you are the creator of this world. You made the world and you uphold it. So thankful, Lord, that you do that in a beautiful way. You know what's best and you're, you're true to your covenant promises, even to creation, to continue to uphold your world as you have said. Thank you, Lord, that you send us sun and rain in season. The weather is turning. We have some warm days, and we're looking forward to some more warm days, and we're grateful for that. Thank you for sending the rain that you have, Lord, and we pray that you continue to give us the rain that we need so that the, the plants can grow and that the, there can be crops and that the animals and the birds can get the, the water that they need, and also us, that we can be well-fed, that we can get the drink that we need as well. Father in heaven, thank you also for your constant preservation you're a God who is in control of all things. We're so grateful that we may be secure in your love towards us. We know that you, you look upon us in mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the special relationship that you've entered into with us. The past few weeks, we've been able to consider different parts of your covenant, this unique relationship that you have with your people. This afternoon, we're going to look a little more at that, and we want to pray for your blessing over that. Please give us insight, Lord. Give us an understanding. Grant that we may treasure your word, that we realize that it's through your word that you reveal yourself to us, 
and that you draw us into an intimate relationship with you. And we pray then, Lord, that we may walk in intimacy with you, that we read your word, that we treasure it, that we take it to heart, that it shapes our thinking, that it guides our actions. Thank you that, that your word is, is an expression of yourself and that through it that you also reveal yourself to us. Pray then, Lord, for a blessing over the preaching this afternoon. Grant that it may be encouraging for us, that we can humble ourselves before you and that we can be built up through it. Please forgive us for all our sins. Hear us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this afternoon I was scheduled to preach on Lord's Day 26. Kind of switched it around. The Lord willing, next week we'll have a sermon on Lord's Day 26. And this afternoon I'll be preaching on Lord's Day 27. And the reason for that is here in Lord's Day 27, it talks about the covenant, and it talks specifically about who's included in the covenant. And so, in connection with that, I'd like to read three passages of Scripture with you, first from Genesis 17, then from Acts 2, and finally from Matthew 5. So I invite you to open your Bible with me, Genesis 17, the verses 1 through 7. Actually, read the verses 1 through 8. Genesis 17, starting at verse 1. Find it on page 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then we turn in our reading to the book of Acts. We're going to read together from Acts chapter 2, the verses 36 to 41. You'll find that on page 1082. So in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter, he preaches the Sermon at Pentecost. He convicts the people that they have crucified the Christ and that God has raised him from the dead and that he's exalted to God's right hand. And so he continues in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So far. Then we're going to go back to the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read together the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, page 962. Matthew 5, we're going to start reading at verse 1, and we'll read the first 12 verses. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the the reading of God's holy word. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from Psalm 105, the verses 3 and 4. Thank you. 
This afternoon we're going to consider the biblical teaching concerning the covenant and who's included in the covenant. We'll do so by looking at what the scripture teaches us as it's also summarized for us in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you want to follow along, you find that on page 541 of your book of praise. So in Lord's Day 27, there the first question asks, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Now we're going to really focus on this last question. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. After the proclamation of the gospel, we're going to sing together from Psalm 72, the verses 1 and 2. Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, in the past number of weeks, we've seen that the Lord has entered into a covenant relationship with us because he intends to bless us. But then the next question becomes, who gets to share? Who is included in the covenant of God? Well, here in Lord's Day 27, we summarize the biblical teaching that God has established his covenant with believers and their seed. Originally, it was Abram and his descendants, and then in the New Testament era, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us it's, it's with all those who believe in Abraham, and then also with their children. But then the question that I'd like to ask you this afternoon, and just consider with you, is the question, who then are the believers? How would you define what is included, or what it takes to be included among the people of God? And this afternoon, I thought that, in part, we would answer that question from a historic perspective. You know, every church has their own history, and their history impacts their understanding of what it looks like to live by faith. And so what I'd like to do with you this afternoon is to consider the biblical teaching, and then also consider our own historical background, and to see what impact that, that has had on us and then to, to compare that to what the scripture says and what we summarize in our confessions. And so this afternoon, I preach God's word to you with this theme, the Lord establishes his covenant with believers and their children. We're going to see in the first place that God's covenant is generously inclusive, and secondly, that God's covenant is ethically exclusive. 
So who gets to share? Well, God told Abram very clearly, Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God made the covenant with Abraham, and God also included his children, his descendants. And we didn't read that section, but if you keep reading in Genesis 17, then the Lord says there, he says, you and your household need to be baptized, and from now on, if any of your descendants has a child, then that child, sorry, not baptized, circumcised, that child needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so all the descendants of Abraham needed to be circumcised to be included in the covenant. But then it's really striking, immediately after saying this to Abraham, then God also showed him that it was always his intention to make it bigger than that. He told Abraham, Genesis 18, verse 18, God says that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations on earth shall be blessed in him. Right at the beginning, God intended to use the Israelites as a vehicle to bless many other nations. He intended many other people to be a part of his covenant people. And you see just a little inkling of that right at the very beginning, when the Lord took the Israelites out of Egypt, then we're told that there's a number of Egyptians, some of the mixed nations, that's the word that's used there in Exodus chapter 12, a bunch of those mixed nations came along with the Israelites out of Egypt and they were included in the people of God. And when the Lord gave legislation for his people how to live, then he also, in the legislation, he allowed foreigners and refugees to come into the Israelites and to be included among them and to share in their social and religious life. And it was always God's intention to include others. You see, for example, Rahab the prostitute. She was included among the people of God. You had the Gibeonites. They were included among the people of God. In Psalm 47, God says that the kings of the earth belong to the Lord. And especially when you get into the later prophets, God shows us that he intends to bring many people from many nations and to include them in his covenant dealings. Isaiah 19, verse 19, God says that Assyria and Egypt will gather to worship God alongside of Israel. And it's really quite striking. You think of Assyria and Egypt, these are the, the enemies of God's people. And yet in that passage, the Lord defines them as my people. They are my people along with the Israelites. And so the scripture is clear that God has always intended to include people from other nations among his covenant children. You know, all this in the Old Testament is just a foreshadowing of something far greater that's going to happen in the New Testament era. Our Lord Jesus Christ came, and after he died and rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent down his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter, at Pentecost, he described to the people that the Lord has sent down his Holy Spirit. And then there's, there's two important things that happen here in Acts 2. In the first place, he shows that, again, it's believers and their children who are included. And the second thing he shows is that those who are believers are to be included, and that includes people from many nations. That's not just the Israelites from now on. So it's in Acts 2, verse 38. He, he's preaching this sermon. 
He shows the people how they crucified the Christ, and then he, he shows that the covenant is for believers and their children. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says to the people, you can be forgiven. There is grace. But he says you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to repent. And then if you do so, then you'll be included in the covenant of God. And so will your children. The Lord uses the language here of Genesis 17. And he updates it for a new situation with the Gentiles to show that the Gentiles are also included. And then the Apostle Peter, it's, he, he didn't quite get it at the time, but it was a few chapters later in, in Acts 10 that the Lord revealed to him that the Roman centurion, Cornelius, was also to be included among the people of God. And when, when he understood that, then it was just amazing to him. He said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This Roman could be included. Well, if a Roman centurion can be included among the people of God, then anyone can be included among the people of God. And so he had it very clear in his mind that, that the covenant is generously inclusive. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you share, then you're in. And that's something that, that we get to preach, and it's really good news for us. I don't know all of you in your ancestry, but I don't know how many Jews there are among us. We are Gentiles. And despite the fact that we are Gentiles, we all get to share in the covenant of God. It's part of the generosity and the kindness of the Lord our God. And then with that, there's also the, the understanding that it not only goes to believers, but also to their children. This is something that the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he spelled out elsewhere. It's in Mark 10, verse 14. Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. The children share in the kingdom. It belongs to them. And that's the, the understanding that Peter has. There's this, this idea that carries on from Abram and his descendants to believers and their children, and so also today children are included in the covenant of God. The Apostle Paul, he, he makes this passing comment. He's talking about what happens in a situation where you're married to somebody who's not a believer. And then the question is, what about the children? He says, well, the children are sanctified through the faith of the believing parent. Children are set apart. They're set apart for God and his service, even if you only have one believing parent. You're holy. You're sanctified. You're set apart for God and his service. And so the apostles, he had this very clear understanding that the covenant, it's not just for believers, but it's also for their children. And so what that meant for them is, is when they baptized people in Acts 10, we have a lot of these, sorry, not Acts 10, yeah, that too, but a number of passages in Acts. You have a lot of these situations where the apostles were baptizing different people, and they baptized the individual plus their household. Cornelius' household was baptized. Lydia's household was baptized. Stephanus' household was baptized. And so it's believers and their children who receive entrance into the covenant of God. Well, that's a, a really beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. That has quite a big impact in our understanding. 
when we have children, then we understand that these are God's children and that they belong to him. It's quite different from, from a Baptist. I was talking to somebody recently and they were explaining the, the Baptist mindset to me and they said, you know, in their church, if you, if you have a child who's born, then the child needs to grow up and they need to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to believe in God and become a part of his, his family. And so the parents approach children and say, well, you need, to, you need to decide. You need to make a choice. Well, when our children were born, we didn't say to them, you need to make a choice as to whether or not you're going to believe in God. We said to them, you are God's children. You're included in God's family. Because we are believers, then you also share in the family. And since you are God's children, now the Lord calls you to live as God's children. He calls you to love him and to serve him and to devote your life to him. And so our approach to our children is one where you do belong to the family. And since you belong to the family, now there's, the Lord calls you to, to live as a family member, to love your family, to love God, and to serve him faithfully. If you, if you realize that the language of the covenant in the scriptures is the language of adoption, the Lord, he adopts us into his family. He includes us through faith in Jesus Christ as his sons and daughters. Well, if we are adopted into his family and then we have children, then, then that gives you quite a, a good understanding of how we are to think of children in the covenant. When we have children that are born in our families, we don't say to them, well, hold on a second. We need to wait till you're 18 years old, till you're 22 years old, till you decide as to whether or not you want to be a part of this family. If you're 20 and you decide you want to be a part of the family, then we'll include you. But up to that time, we have to wait and see. No, when our children are born, you're part of the family. You are our children. You belong. And we love you. And we're going to care for you. And we're going to look after you. And it does happen occasionally that a child grows up and they renounce their family. I don't love you. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to leave you and I never want to see you again. And sometimes that does happen. And in the covenant of God, sometimes that happens as well. You have children who grow up and they renounce the covenant. They don't believe in God and they don't want anything to do with him. But they are members. You're a member of the family because God includes believers and their children in his covenant. Well, if you have that understanding, brothers and sisters, then you, then you understand something of, of why we take the approach that we do towards our children. Well, that raises the second question, the other issue we want to look at this afternoon, and that's the question, how do we define what it means to be a believer? How do you define the, the community? Who should be included? And under what conditions is someone included in the covenant community? Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think that most people in our churches would say that God's covenant people are believers, those who believe and confess the Reformed faith. Now, we have quite a bit of an understanding of, of the history of the church. We understand that, that over time there have been a lot of heresies, there have been a lot of false teaching. There's a lot of people who went astray, who had a different understanding of the scriptures. And so we have it quite clearly fixed in our minds that if you wish to, to be a part of the church, if you want to be a part of the covenant community, that you need to believe the doctrines of the scriptures. You need to have a basic understanding of the confessions which summarize those biblical teachings. 
And we're going to sit down with you. We're going to ask you about that. Do you have a basic understanding? Do you know who God is? Do you know how God relates to his people? Do you understand what the scripture says about living in that relationship together with God? And that also means that you know, we're a bit sensitive to some of the heresies that have happened over the centuries. We're not Roman Catholics who think that salvation is something that you can earn. And we're not Arminians who think that ultimately it's your choice whether or not to be a part of the people of God and who deny the sovereignty of God in your election. And we're not Baptists who reject infant baptism. And we're not charismatics who emphasize the gifts of the Spirit and who speak about the ongoing revelation of God and who also talk about a health and a welfare gospel. And we're not liberals who question the historicity of certain passages of the Bible. And we don't emphasize that the church is here for the world and that it's only a social gospel and say that doctrine is irrelevant. And we are reformed believers. We seek to uphold the teachings of the scriptures. We follow what the Bible says as summarized in the confessions. And then one of the things that's also unique for us is that we also place a fairly heavy emphasis on the doctrine of the covenant. And one of the ways we work that out is that we don't easily mingle with other Christians, with other people. One of the things we do is we have an understanding that there is to be an antithesis between us and others. There needs to be a division with those who are not a part of the covenant community. And then we work fairly closely with those who are. If you're part of the covenant community, then we want to work together. We wish to cooperate together, especially in education of our children, also in looking after the old people, also looking after anyone who has special needs, and in many other ways. Well, in all this, there's a pretty heavy emphasis on the teaching. You need to maintain the correct teaching. If somebody wants to join our church, we want to train them in the doctrines of the scriptures, and we want to make sure that they have a good understanding of the basic teachings of the, of the Bible. If you think about relationships with other churches, that's usually the core question. Do they uphold the teachings of the scriptures as that's also summarized for us in our confessions? Well, brothers and sisters, if I ask you, would you, would you agree with me? Is that a fairly, fairly accurate understanding of, of how things go among us within our churches? What's interesting is how much emphasis we place on right teaching. It's a huge part of our thinking. And actually, it's, it's quite a typically Reformed emphasis. If you visit other Reformed churches, if you have the opportunity to do that, you go to different places in the world, and you meet with other Reformed Christians, then you'll see that most of them also have a fairly heavy emphasis on upholding faithful teaching. As Reformed believers, we, we know our history. And this is something that, that we very much emphasize. For us here, we, we do that very much, maybe even more than others. And the one thing we also have is that we also really emphasize the doctrine of the covenant. That's pretty central in our thinking. And then the question becomes, well, why? Why do we emphasize this so much? You could say we do that because that's what the Bible teaches. 
the Bible teaches us we need to hold on to faithful teaching. There are many places in the scriptures where the Lord warns against false teachers. And he says, don't go along with them. He says, you can't do that. That's not who you are. If there are false teachers who lead you astray, then the Lord says, you have nothing to do with them. Keep away from those who cause divisions among you. Paul warns repeatedly in his letters about different people who bring a different gospel, and he says, you don't go along with them, and you don't share together with them. And so you can make a biblical case why this is such an important thing for us to do. And yet I think there's also, I've often reflected, you know, is there, is there more to it than that? And I wonder if it also has to do with our history, brothers and sisters. Within our own history, there's been a struggle around right teaching. Many of us who are present here this afternoon, we are of Dutch Reformed background. If, you, if you're aware of that history, then sometimes it helps understand why we, we have the approach that we do. Part of the background is, is that it was back in the 1800s that there were a couple of splits that happened in the church because of biblical teaching. So in 1834, there were a group of people who left the Dutch state church. They called it the secession. And the reason they left is because they had some concerns that the teachings of the scriptures especially about you know, the confessional teaching, about sinfulness of man and, and how we're saved. Some of those things, they were not being upheld in the church. And so you had a group of, of believers who left, and they, they were part of these secession churches. And they had another group who were, they stayed behind in, this, in the Dutch state church, and they were there for another 50 years, and they, they tried to help the mother church to change so that they would be faithful to the scripture. But after about 50 years, many of those people came out as well. They called themselves, or that event, the Doliancy, which is a Dutch word that means grieving. They were grieving over what happened in the mother church. And so as an act of grieving, they left the mother church. And then those two came together, the group, those from 1834 and those from 1886, they joined together in 1892. But it was a bit tricky at the time because those who left in 1834, they said that the mother church is a false church. And those who left in 1886, they said, well, the mother church, it's not as pure. You have some churches that are more pure and other churches that are less pure, but they weren't willing to call the mother church a false church. And that led to quite a discussion in, in the new church about, so how do we think about that? And that discussion really came to a head it was in the 1920s. In 1926, there was a man teaching at the seminary. His name was Dr. Helkerken, and he didn't believe in the historicity of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so he was deposed. You're not allowed to serve an office if you don't believe that Genesis 1 is historical, Genesis 3 is historical. And so he was let go. But then what happened was that some of his followers were still able to be involved in all sorts of different ways. They were able to teach in the schools and to be involved in evangelism and in radio ministry and in a political party together. And that led to an intense discussion in the next 20 years, in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s, there was a very intense discussion about how do we think about that and how do we manage that? If he can't preach in the churches, then can we let them teach in the schools? 
And can we cooperate together in evangelism? And how do we, how do, we do that? And so there's a, a very intense discussion about that. And that, that discussion, it came to a head in the 40s, right during the middle of the war. It came to a head during the time, in part about the teaching of the church, but also about a couple of other doctrinal matters, about baptism and some other things. And that led to another split. And that's when the Vrijgemaakt, the Free Reformed, came out of, of what we would call the Christian Reformed Church in the Netherlands. Well, a huge part of the thinking is we need to uphold right doctrine. And we need to work with people with whom we worship. And then it was in the next five, ten years that many of our forefathers, they left the Netherlands, they moved to Australia or to Canada or elsewhere, and they had this thinking with them. It's really important for us to cooperate together with those who share the same faith. And so we work with those whom we worship. And so the first thing we did was set up a church. And fairly shortly after that, we set up a Christian school so that we can work together in the education of our children with those with whom we share the same faith. And then as opportunity arose, you set up an old age home. And you set up a home for those with whom you have special needs. And you do whatever you can to work together with those with whom you worship. Well, that's a, a bit of the background. I hope that gives a fair summary of, of some of the thinking, some of the development, some of the historic development within our churches. And then within that context, what I'd like to do with you this afternoon for a moment, brothers and sisters, is to, to think about this biblically. So we emphasize, to a great extent, the importance of right teaching and right doctrine. If you want to be a covenant member, you need to hold on to the right teaching. Well, if you go to the Old Testament, it's very interesting what God says about life in the covenant. What does he say? Well, probably the place in the Bible where the Lord explains what life in the covenant ought to look like most clearly would be Deuteronomy 4 through to chapter 10. There's about six, seven chapters there in which the Lord spells it out. And I'll just read one passage that gives a fairly good summary of what those chapters are about. Maybe if you want to open your Bible with me, we'll read a few verses from Deuteronomy 10. So Deuteronomy 10, page 182. I'm going to start reading with you at verse 12, and I'll read the verses 12 through 15. So Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. God saying, my calling in the covenant is that you love me and that you fear me, and that you worship me, and that you walk with me. 
And God says, I am your God, and I chose you as my special people. We saw in the last few weeks, what is the covenant about? It's about the Lord coming to us saying, I am your covenant God who loves you and who's going to look after you. And we say to the Lord, we are your covenant people, and we love you, and we want to live in a relationship together with you. Well, that's what God says here. Now, it's very interesting when you think about that, then it doesn't talk about right teaching. God doesn't say, you are my covenant people when you believe the right teaching. No, he says, you are my covenant people when you love me, when you fear me, when you serve me, when you walk with me. It's actually quite interesting if you keep reading in the Old Testament, then the emphasis is not there on right teaching. It's when the people later in their history broke the covenant, then the Lord called them to repent. And there were two ways in which he called them to repent. He said the first way in which you sin is an idolatry, is an apostasy. If you go serving other gods, or if you make idols for yourself, then that's breaking the covenant. That's, that's the, the core of covenant breaking. If you go look to other nations to rescue you, if you rely on your own strength, if you rely on your armies, if you go worshiping Baal or Asherah, then you have broken the covenant. And if you don't repent of that, then you are not my people and I'm not your God. That's the first way in which the people broke the covenant. And then the second way in which they broke the covenant is the Lord said, it's when you don't love the people around you. If you act in exploitation and oppression, for the people around you. If you take advantage, especially of the weak and the poor and the needy, then you have broken the covenants. Then you are not righteous. And then you're not acting in justice before me. And then you are not living as my covenant people. And so the Lord called his people to repent of those things. What is the ethic of the, Lord of the Old Testament? What does it look like to live as God's covenant people? If you think of some of the, the well-known texts in the scriptures, brothers and sisters, think of Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When the words of Jeremiah 23, verse 9, after telling us not to boast in wisdom, or in might, or in riches, then the Lord says, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It is in Isaiah 1, verse 10 to 15, that the Lord tells his people that he hates their worship. I'm sick and tired of your offerings and your sacrifices and your burnt offerings and your prayers. And the reason for that is because God says, your hands are full of blood. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the Father, and plead the widow's cause. Life in the covenant with God in the Old Testament is about loving him. It's about humbly walking with him. It's about fearing him and serving him only. 
Life in covenant with God means that you do what's loving and righteous and just and kind for your neighbor. There's virtually, there's simply no talk about believing right things. It is true. It does say about, God says you shouldn't follow false gods. And he also says you shouldn't follow a false prophet. If he predicts things that don't come to pass, then you'll know that he is a false prophet and you shouldn't listen to his word. But in the Old Testament, breaking the covenant was about breaking relationship with God and sinning against the people around you. It wasn't, in the first place, about believing wrong things. And you hear about that, brothers and sisters, and you wonder to yourself, well, why not? And the answer for that is because it's given in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there is an emphasis on right teaching. And the reason for that is because in the New Testament, what happens is that Jesus Christ comes and he fulfills the requirements of the covenant. When Christ came, he did what God called all of us to do. He loved God with all his heart. He served God faithfully. He feared the Lord. He trusted God in everything. He also loved the people around him. He was compassionate towards the people. He was merciful. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He taught the people. He helped them to have joy, to have hope for the future. And so he fulfilled the calling of the covenant. He lived in covenant harmony and covenant fellowship with God. And then the Bible teaches us he did it for you. He fulfilled the covenant for you. And so the core calling of the New Testament is that God says to you, you must believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is your only hope. That's the only way to live in covenant fellowship with God. You must have an intimate relationship of love with Christ. You must trust him to have done it for you. And then it is within that context that the New Testament says, and if anyone comes and he leads you away from Christ then you must reject that false teaching. And so in the New Testament, there is a far greater emphasis on not falling for false teaching. And the reason for that is because false teachers lead you away from Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Jews and Gentiles in Romans, he says, you're justified through faith in Christ, and you must believe this. You must hold on to this. And he says to the Galatians, He says, who's bewitched you with another gospel? If you want to hold on to the law, then you're undermining the gospel of Christ. And that is not the gospel. And so he says, you must go back to the gospel. You must trust Jesus Christ to do it for you. Paul says in Philippians, he says, if anybody did it right, it would have been me. But he says, I count it as rubbish compared to the only righteousness, which is believing in Jesus Christ and having him as my savior. And throughout the rest of the epistles, the apostles, they warn us and they call us, there's going to be false teachers and they're going to lead you astray. They're going to lead you into idolatry. They're going to lead you into apostasy. And so whatever you do, don't let them lead you away from Jesus Christ. Well, if you understand that background, brothers and sisters, that you understand why the calling in the New Testament 
is to hold on to the true teaching. We're very right in emphasizing that you need to hold on to the true teaching of Jesus Christ in order to be a member of the covenant. But then what I'd also encourage you to see is that in the New Testament, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, then he upheld the same ethic that God taught in the Old Testament. If you wish to be a covenant child, then you believe in Jesus Christ, and then Christ lives in you. And then you become a new person. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he taught us what it looks like. He didn't, he didn't always use the word covenant. In the New Testament, they often use the word kingdom. He taught us what kingdom life looks like. And he says kingdom life is a life lived in intimacy and fellowship with God. And kingdom life is a life where you love the people around you and where you serve the people around you. And so we read a few moments ago, we read a little bit from Matthew chapter 5. The other Lord Jesus Christ, he, he describes what life in the covenant, what life in the kingdom looks like. He says there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Kingdom life, covenant life, it's life characterized by humility. You're humble before God. It's a life characterized by mourning over sin. You're truly sorry for the sins that you commit. It's a life characterized by loving righteousness. You do what's right. It's a life characterized by being merciful. You are merciful as God has been merciful to you. It's a life characterized by being a peacemaker. As God has established peace between you and him, he also calls you to live in peace with the people around you. And so God says, if you're a covenant child, then you don't go on like, like the world does. You don't go on lying and stealing and cheating and taking advantage of people. James says, that's idolatry. If you do that, you're a friend with the world and you're an enemy of God. Well, if you're a child of God, then you live in love with the people around you. James, in, in chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1 there, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We heard the fruit of the Spirit this morning, brothers and sisters. If you are a covenant child of God, then you believe in Jesus Christ and then Christ lives in you and then his fruit is manifest within you and that you're someone who's filled with love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. So where does it leave us, brothers and sisters? Well, we're very right in emphasizing the importance of right doctrine. The Lord warns us that fierce wolves are going to attack the flock and try to draw disciples away after them. He says, false teachers are going to come. They're going to give people what their itching ears want to hear. 
He says it's imperative to maintain the truth of his word. Especially office bearers, they have a task to train the members so that God's people mature in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they're not blown by every wind of teaching, but that they mature in Christ and that they serve each other in love, and that in this way, that they're grounded in who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. But then I also say to you, that's not where it stops. It's not just about right teaching. Living in covenant with God means that you love God and that you love your neighbor. It means that you worship him, that you trust him, that you depend upon him in everyday life for all the things that you need. You don't do life on your own strength. You don't do it by your own power. No, day after day, hour after hour, you open your heart to the Lord. You ask him for what, he need, what you need. You thank him for what he gives you. You depend upon him. You rely upon him. You have an intimacy together with him where you have an open life with him and him with you. And life in the covenant is a life where you truly care about the people around you and where you're gentle with them, where you're compassionate, where you're kind, where you're forgiving, where you're merciful. There's no room for sin. There is no space for sin. In the covenant, we have this this beautiful intimacy with God that happens apart from sin. If you give sin a place in your life, then you will be put outside the covenant community because sin, in the end, leads to estrangement from God and it destroys relationships with your brothers and sisters. And God says, that's not on. And so for us who live in the covenant, then we ask God to help us with that. We flee from our sins and we seek to do what's good and right before the Lord. We are those who love to be gracious as God has been gracious to us. Well, then I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, how are you doing at living as covenant children? Do you hold the right doctrine? The doctrine that that leads you back to Christ? And do you also live out that doctrine? Do you love God with all your heart? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Would you say that in your dealings with others that you are merciful and gracious and kind and gentle? That you are meek and poor in spirit and that you mourn over sin? And that you have a hump, that you have a special eye for the weak, for the vulnerable, and for the needy. I wonder sometimes in our zeal to uphold right doctrine, if we lose sight of the Christ to whom the doctrine points. And if we lose sight of the life in Christ that the doctrine seeks to lead us to. If you wish to raise your children to be covenant children, and it means that you teach them to believe in Jesus Christ. You trust in him, as they trust in him as their savior. And it also means that you teach them to be Christ-like, to walk in love and humility as Christ did with us. Well, we do it, brothers and sisters. That's who we are and that's what we want. But we could also grow up in that, in some way, that some way, in which we can mature. Amen.
Let's sing together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing from Psalm 72, the verses 1 and 2. Pray to God in thanksgiving. Almighty God and Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for the gifts that you have given to us. Thank you that we may be your covenant children and that you are our Father. Thank you, Lord, that you invited us into this relationship as an act of grace. You took the initiative and you included us. And thank you, Lord, that you also sustained this as an act of grace. When we sin against you, then you don't immediately throw us out. But you're a gracious God who's willing to forgive sin, your long-suffering, and it is your great desire to continue with us. Father, we're sorry for the sins we've committed against you, and we repent of that. We thank you also, Lord, that you include our children together with us in the covenant of grace. 
Thank you that Abram and his descendants were included, and that believers and our children are included in the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, that our children are your children, that we don't have to make a choice between loving you or loving our children, but we can love both because they're also a part of you, and they're also a part of your covenant. We honor you for this great gift, and we're, we're so grateful for that, Lord. We also pray that you would help us then to teach our children to know you and to love you and to walk as your covenant children. Help us to understand what that means, Lord. Grant that we, that we never fall into idolatry, that we don't pursue money or reputation or pleasure or comfort or ease, but that in the first place that we pursue you, that we love you, that we serve you, that we fear you, that we adore you, that we worship you, that we trust you. Help us to grow in that. Lord, we, we do already, but we need to learn to do that more and more. And so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you fill us with this Spirit so that we can humbly depend upon you day after day. Help us, Lord, to be willing to suffer for your sake. You say, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Help us, Lord, to be humble for your sake, that we're willing to, to make ourselves low. Help us to be poor in spirit, that we understand that we have nothing to claim before you, but that we come to you as beggars with empty hands. And help us also, Lord, to live in covenant fellowship with you by, by loving the people who you've put in our lives. Help us to love our husband or wife, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters. Help us to love our, our, the other members of our church. Give us your Holy Spirit that we can have an open heart where we love one another dearly and where we're able to work together. And to this end, Lord, please give us humility. We pray that you, you give us a heart where we see those who have need and that we reach out to satisfy that need, to fill that need. Please give us a heart, Lord, where we, we care about those people who've had a lot of pain in their lives, that we understand how much suffering they've endured and that we seek to do, to do what we can to help them to alleviate that pain, alleviate that pain and live and walk closely with you. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us also to walk in such a way with each other that we encourage each other to live closely with you. To this end, Lord, we pray that you'd also help us to hold on to the true teachings of the Bible. There are many people who go astray and who have a wrong teaching. And in the end, Lord, that often leads to a misunderstanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And we pray then you would protect us from that. We're so thankful for the forefathers who've gone before us. They've, they've experienced many of these things, and they understood these things. And a lot of the, the confessions that we have, the, also the creeds that we have, they're born out of struggle in the church. And they seek to summarize the true teachings of the Bible about who you are and about what you've done for your people. And we're so grateful for that, Lord, and we pray that we can hold on to these teachings and that they can bless us in a relationship with you. Please grant, Lord, that we use them in a right way, that we use them to build up our relationship with you and, and to also have fellowship with other faithful believers who know and love you. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that, that you would assist us with your Holy Spirit so that our church can be a place where there is grace and compassion, where there's kindness and mercy, where the power of Christ is evident in our midst, and where the, the light of Christ shines into this world. We pray that many other people may join us, that they long to know you and to be a part of your church, that we're able to, to disciple others, and that together we can worship you. Thank you so much for the blessing that we receive from one another, for putting us in covenant relationship together and for blessing us in that.
You are very kind. We're very grateful for that. Father, please protect us. Please preserve us. As we go on from here, please hold on to us. That we don't give sin, we don't give false teaching a place in our hearts, but that we flee from that, and that we walk closely with you. Thank you for doing that for us, and please continue that. And we also pray, Lord, that you allow this work to go on in, in Papua New Guinea. We're so thankful that we get to support the mission work there. We want to ask, Father, for a blessing over the missionaries who are there. Please grant that the office bearers who are also in the churches may fulfill the duties of their office, and please grant that, that other brothers can mature to come into that, into that position. We also thank you, Lord, for the public profession of faith of a number of members in the congregation of Hila. We're so thankful. There's, there's 10 new adult members who've made profession of faith, and there's also five new children who've been baptized. And Lord, it's not that long ago that, that there were quite a few more people who also joined the church in Hila. What a great joy. What a great blessing. And we thank you for that, and we pray that that may continue. Please grant, Lord, that, that also others may continue to join and that the church there can grow in maturity. I also wish to ask, Father, that you be with our new missionary, with Brother Tim Slough, as he prepares for his classical exam. Please give him insight in that. I also want to pray, Lord, that you be with the delegates of the mission board who are hoping to go to PNG soon. Please grant a blessing over their travels. Give them a good trip. Please keep them safe and grant that the work that they do there may also be a blessing for your churches. And we also pray, Lord, that you would please also be with the Klein family. They're in a time where they're saying farewell to those on the mission board, and they're going to be moving here to Australia in due time. Please comfort them through that time. Assist them and grant, Lord, that they may be a blessing there, that they can leave that place with full hearts, rejoicing in the good work that you've done also through their work. Father, please grant your blessing that they're able to take up the work in Comet Bay and grant that that may go well. Thank you so much, Lord, for all the blessing that you give in the mission work. That's such a kindness that you give, and, and we honor you for that, and we pray that that may continue. Lord, we, we wish to tell you that we do love you. As we reflect on all the blessings that you give, then our hearts are filled with gratitude to you for the riches of your kindness towards us. Please accept our thanks, Lord. Please hear us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, we just prayed for the mission work in PNG. You now have the opportunity to give your thank offerings for that work. Then, after the collection, we're going to sing together from Hymn 85, verses 1, 2, 3.
Receive now the blessing of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.